It's Monday, July 24th, 2023, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Writer of the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he's well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel. Whalen is joined today, as always, by Leo Haney, the Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program and Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes weekly about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, gentlemen, this wouldn't be a California podcast if we didn't talk about Hollywood and movies. Uh, Hollywood is on strike right now, the first time both actors and writers have been on strike in 60 years. There are some overlapping concerns uh, and reasons why both groups are on strike, uh, notably concerns that generative AI will replace talent in the future. And they both have demands that they want to be justly compensated for streaming projects. Uh, unions representing talent and studios um, ultimately could not reach an agreement over a three-year contract. Gentlemen, what does this fallout from these negotiations mean for the future of the film industry and California's economy at large? Well, Jonathan, it is a uh, it's a unicorn situation where both uh, the string the screen actors and the writers are both on strike. I believe the last time that happened. Uh, you have to go back to the early 1960s, and that's an interesting parallel because both of these strikes really are about technology. Both of these events that are 60 years apart really are about technology issues. Today, um, streaming and artificial intelligence are really some of the issues that are preventing an agreement. And back in the day, back to the early 1960s, um, you know, that was a time when we had Leave it to Beaver, uh, uh, Gunsmoke. Um, I don't know if Superman was yet part of the part of the genre yet, but that was really the time. Um, uh, I Love Lucy. Uh, that was the time of um, serial television shows really taking off and becoming widespread within the context of people's homes as uh, post-war America was rapidly buying televisions and entertainment was shifting to sort of a whole new product, which was watching, you know, weekly I Love Lucy or I Love or, or Gunsmoke or, or Leave it to Beaver. And at that time, um, residuals and the sharing of the, of, the, of, of the revenue that was being created by the TV shows was at issue. Um, and I think TV, the um, the TV industry just saw how explosive growth was occurring and that they simply couldn't afford to keep the industry shut down for very long. So they reached an agreement that provided residuals and um, established labor peace with the industry for an awful long time. Um, so to fast forward to today, the business has really been turned upside down um, by the Internet. Um, What's happened is that the old framework of television shows as we knew them, which was a 22-week season, the show was on once a week, it was half hour or one hour, depending upon the show, that's all gone. Um, what is here now is streaming, and with streaming, what we have are shows that are no longer 22 weeks they are six to 10 episodes. Um, and within those six to 10 episodes, the production is uh, is very concentrated within time. And now we enter the writers and the screen actors. Writers are really upset because their compensation has declined substantially. 
they no longer have those 22 week uh, CSI or Seinfeld type shows they, they can work on. They are hustling to write in a very short period of time, the six or eight or 10 week series that you see on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. Um, and they are really worried about artificial intelligence such as chat GPT taking over their jobs. We've got the screen actors um, who now have gone on strike and there are many more of them. There are about 160,000 of them compared to about 10,000 in the writer's union. So now we have complete, really, uh, you know, pretty much a complete stoppage of Hollywood. Screen actors are worried about residuals also. Um, and I think what is going to be more difficult this time around than if we go back to the early 1960s is that there are some extremely profitable shows within the industry, but what the actors and the writers are not really realizing is that Netflix and Hulu and the division of Amazon that's doing streaming, they don't realize that these entities are losing money. The streaming services haven't really figured out how to become profitable. They can't figure out which shows are going to be a hit, which shows weren't. Um, I think Netflix is really, yeah, Bill, Bill I, I, I think you'll have some stuff to add on this, but I think Netflix is really very upset about how much they paid to Megan and Megan and Harry and how little <laughs> and how that was just a complete lead balloon. Right. Um, so we've got, um, you know, we've got a brick wall and a car hitting up against that brick wall. Um Actors and writers, I think, are going to have to be somewhat more sensitive to the idea that there aren't tons, millions and billions of dollars of profits sitting around. But they understandably are upset about how the industry has changed and how there's not as much revenue for them. And the studios are saying, hey, you know what? <laughs> We're not pulling it in. I mean, a few, a few shows are, but most of them simply aren't. Um, there are just, you know probably too many shows out there. There's not enough, despite it's a global commodity now, there's not enough of an audience to consume all of those shows. Just go to your local Showtime or Netflix and look to see just how much content there is. There's simply just isn't enough, even in a global, even in a global market, there just isn't enough demand for all those shows. Um, Bill, I suspect this could go on for a long time. And in the meanwhile, it might be costing the California economy somewhere between 150 million to 200 million dollars per week. Yeah. Uh, some estimates the entertainment industry is directly or ind indirectly associated with about 15 to 20 percent of California's GDP. Um, so this is this is a terrible blow to the California economy. The only saving grace is the summertime. Tourists are coming to Los Angeles and Hollywood, uh, as is Taylor Swift, who will generate an awful lot of revenue. Uh, so there is that. Um, but this is not this is not good news for the California economy. Yeah, you know, as the uh, the resident political hack on this podcast, I'll, I'll get into the politics of uh, the strike in a moment. But uh, Lee, you hit onto something important. Uh, a couple months ago, I finally cut the cord, cut the cable in my house. Yeah, I'm months behind, years behind everybody else on this. And up in front of me is just a world of content like I cannot imagine between the likes of YouTube TV. I have a Sony TV, so I get Google TV. And of course, I'm an appaholic. I have way too much stuff to watch, and I just not enough time. So, so the very crusty cynic in me thinks, okay, if Hollywood goes on strike and there's no new content for you know six months, whatever figure it'll put out there, 
I can play catch up and watch stuff. Now it does it does mess with people's viewing habits. For example, if you are addicted to the TV show Yellowstone, uh, Yellowstone has had a very tumultuous past few months with Kevin Costner wanting to leave the show, and now they have to figure out how to bring the thing to an abrupt halt. Now because of the writer strike, they can't do it. So that show is just going to dangle out to 2024. Um, but Lee, what I keep falling back to is really the question of what this means to California's economy. I I look back in the Hollywood strike of 2007, 2008, reportedly it was a $2 billion hit uh, to the California economy. Now, $2 billion is a lot of money to the three of us. But, Lee, we're talking about a global economy that is California, what the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world, depending on who you're talking to. How much does really two, three billion, two or $3 billion lost in the California economy really matter, Lee? Or is this, really, is this more of a matter of just kind of prestige since we are talking Hollywood and one of the, the showcase uh, you know, you know, features of the California economy? Right. Um, Bill is, uh, yeah, there's truth to both of those statements. Um, it certainly is a prestige issue because California for a long time has laid claim to the home of the world's entertainment industry. And California has lost a little bit of that luster over time as some productions have moved to other locations, not only just because of the need for those locations, but also because other areas, particularly Canada, are competing for those productions by offering a lot of tax breaks that California either is not uh, willing to uh, cave into. Um, but, you know, Bill, the um, the estimates for the losses um, should be treated with, um, you know, some variance because no one really knows just how far the reach of the California entertainment economy goes. Um, you know, it's an interesting industry in that so much of that is outsourced um, and that ranges from the people who cater those shows um, up to uh, auditors who are looking at the books, um, up to the people who are building the sets. Those are all separate. Those are all separate industries that are, that are getting employed. And the estimates that we see, such as, hey, two billion was lost in 07, 08. What happens? You know, could it go to four billion this time? Yeah, I, su I, I suspect it easily will go to four billion. But what becomes really the sticking point is, will those caterers who were on the set previously, you know, will they find other work to replace what they lost? Um, and that's just much harder to say. So I suspect that, um, you know, the estimates of anything might be a little bit on the low side. Um, and it leaves the California economy vulnerable. Yeah. Now, one thing I've learned about the strike, Lee, is I don't know how many Bernie Sanders supporters there are in Hollywood. And here's why I mentioned this. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, just signed a contract with Amazon, speaking of streaming services, who spent a lot of money. He got a $50 million deal. That's $10 million more than uh, Robert Downey got for his last Captain America role. You see celebrities on the picket line going along with these long-suffering writers. I don't hear anybody, Lee and Jonathan, talking about wage sharing or equality or anything like that. So, you know, it'd be fun kind of just to talk to Adam and say, okay, you're willing to take a big hit in wages so the writers make more. But the politics here are interesting uh, in this regard. There are two people who could step into this if they wanted to. One is the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, and the other is the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Uh, Mayor Bass has headaches to deal with, primarily homelessness, which is what she ran on, what she needs to clean up, as we talked about in a lot of this podcast. It's just there in front of her. She has to deal with that. I'm not sure if she has the bandwidth to take on the strike. 
Newsom does have the bandwidth to take it on. He never shies away from an opportunity to get in front of the cameras. But maybe Lee and Jonathan Newsom is looking at what happened to Bill Clinton when he got involved in the baseball strike back in 1994 and 1995. Somebody in Clinton's White House thought it would be a great idea for the president to step in as the arbitrator, the mediator, and sit the two sides down and scold them and tell them to get back to work for the better of America. And both those sides had a two-word response for the president, and those two words were not Merry Christmas. And Clinton looked just very weak and ineffective as a result, and was one of the many reasons why he and his party got kicked to the curb in the midterm elections that year. So maybe Newsom and Bass are thinking about Clinton's experience. I think more the case, Lee and Jonathan, is this, that if you're a California Democrat, the last thing you ever do is rattle Hollywood's cage. If you're a California Democrat, the last thing you do is you try you avoid rattling the cage of high-end donors. And here in this strike, Lee and Jonathan, we have the two sides against each other, unions on one side and high-end donors on the other. And just for, for an aspiring politician, a natural politician like Newsom, you don't want to get caught in the middle of this. Now, Bill, 100%. It's, um, it's a perfect storm for the Democratic Party because they're the party of unions and they're also the party of Hollywood. So you've got your two benefactors duking it out. And you know what can they do? All they can do is uh, they don't want to be seen as playing a favorite. Um, and I think at some level, the fundamentals of the striker ones that I don't think they could, even if they wanted to, they would have very much ability to influence. So, yeah, it seems like be a lose-lose situation for the Democratic Party. Um, the longer it goes on, the worse it's going to look for California, the worse it's going to look for, for the governor. Um, you know, when you mentioned Clinton, that was really interesting. I think he was trying to channel, uh, of all people, um, Richard Nixon, who had been dispatched by Eisenhower back in the day when he was vice president to bring um, the two sides together in the country's uh, steel strike. When uh, the United States had a steel industry, we don't have much of the steel industry anymore. Um, but I believe about three or 400,000 people were on strike back in the 1950s when Nixon was vice president. And he ended up uh, having some influence again, the two sides together. Um, but that looks to be very unlikely now. And um it doesn't look good. Yeah, it certainly doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't look good for California. Um, I don't. Bill, Bill, do you think there's any chance Newsom will wade in uh, if this thing lasts much longer? He's made a very clear lead that he will engage when he is asked to engage. And that is exactly the kind of out he wants. He does not want to get into this because he doesn't want to look ineffective. But again, he doesn't want to get in the business of winners and losers. He does, want, does not want to get unions upset with him. And also a lot of the people on the west side of Los Angeles who run studios or in the industry, they give a lot. They could potentially give a lot to him if he ran for president. He doesn't want to get on the wrong side of them. So he's going to stay out of it. You know who else is not involved in this, interestingly enough, is the first partner of California, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who is, of course, a film documentarian and a former actress. I assume she probably has a SAG card, or maybe she doesn't. By now, but she certainly knows. And you don't see her talking much about this. You just don't want to pick sides because you're rightly it's the perfect storm for the California Democratic existence. Um, gentlemen, staying on uh, the topic of motion pictures, two movies open this weekend uh, that received a fair amount of news buzz, and um, and those were the live action Barbie film and Oppenheimer, uh, the biopic of the World War II era physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer 
who invented the atomic bomb. Uh, the fact that these two films were released together generated a fair amount of attention, a viral internet meme known as Barbenheimer, whereby users joked about how these two movies cater to diametrically different audiences, boosted interest in both the films. Uh, Barbie made $162 million at the box office, and Oppenheimer made $82 uh, million. Uh, gentlemen, first, did you see any of the movies, uh, any of the two movies of the weekend? And second, uh, both movies have a California angle. Uh, Barbie's depicted in Venice Beach, and from what I understand, Mattel's headquarters in El Segundo, and Oppenheimer recounts the University of California's role in the Manhattan Project. Uh, gentlemen, do you care to share any thoughts about these, how these movies reflect California's culture and politics? Uh, well, I, I tried to see Oppenheimer last Friday when I was out of town, and it was showing on one screen where I was, and it was sold out in advance because I suspect every uh, elderly person, there's a very hot climate I was in, I suspect every retiree with an interest in history wouldn't go to a cool theater lined up for Oppenheimer, and I was not going to sit in the front row of the theater and you know get a neck injury looking at the screen for three hours, and it's a three-hour long film. It's formidable. Uh, nor did I go for Barbie. I'm saving that for when Lee comes up to Palo Alto to visit me. Uh, Lee, I don't know if you have a blonde wig or not, but uh, maybe we could get that for you. I don't have any pink heels. You're on your own for that, Lee. Um, but Barbie was a phenomenon in this theater complex that I went to. There were six screens devoted to Barbie, one screen to Oppenheimer. So maybe it's not entirely a fair fight in that regard. But uh, I did notice how Barbie has just kind of become a thing, not just with uh, with women at the movies, but also politicians jumping onto this. I'm going to read to you guys a uh, tweet put out by the governor's office, Gavin Newsom's office, on last Friday, an opening day for Barbie. And tell me if this is not a bit of overkill, but here we go. <clears throat> the governor's office wrote the following quote, here are four ways Barbie embraces California values. One, Barbie is proof that you, quote, can be anything. California has more scientists, researchers, professional sports teams, engineers, and Nobel laureates than any other state. Barbie has had over 200 jobs, and like her, Californians are free to be themselves and pursue their dreams. Point two, it's no secret that California is leading the fight against climate change. But did you know Barbie is also a climate champion, hitting the roads in her electric vehicle? Point three, surfs up. Barbie is a proud champion of California state sports surfing. Point four, California is taking action to make sure that every Californian is supported and has access to mental health resources. Barbie is also an advocate for mental health and has been vocal about normalizing mental health struggles and why reaching out for help is so important. So kudos to Barbie, who, by the way, I think was introduced in 1959. So she is 64 to 65 years of age. Um, but there's a flip side of looking at Barbie. Point number one would be that the film has been accused of uh, using the homeless in a bad way. If you watch the film, I'm told there's a scene in Santa Monica where they use the homeless population as a backdrop. People thought that was tacky. They also reportedly paid extras to dress up as homelessness and uh, homeless people and in a scene shot next to Santa Monica City Hall. So yikes. The second thing which I noticed here, Lee, and I want to get your thoughts on this, there is a real-life uh, Malibu uh, dollhouse, uh, Barbie dollhouse of Malibu, an honest-to-goodness house. It is uh, has a pool and a water slide, a big old dance floor, plenty of pink all over it. And, Lee, it's uh, along the Pacific Coast Highway right on the beach, and it's yours for anywhere up to $10 million. So this is the fantasy world of Barbie where you can hold 200 jobs in the course of 59 years and live at a $10 million, $10 million house, and life is good. I think reality in California, Lee, speaks to otherwise. Barbie uh, Barbie was a success. Um, Bill, was there any chance that Barbie wouldn't be driving an EV? Well, there um, you go. There you go. You know, it's interesting. Um, when, uh, I mean, my daughter's grown now, but um, when uh, when I lived in, uh, when I lived down in um, near the Santa Monica area, we used to drive past uh, what she would call the Barbie house uh, every day going to school. So, um and it's, you know, and I used to speculate, gosh, I wonder what that would sell for. 
it's on an area where there's really very, you know, there's really no setbacks between the, between the houses. You are literally on top of your neighbors, but it is right on top of the sand. But uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pink and pastel uh, green and blue right out there. Uh, and you know, this was a time when when my daughter was really into Barbies, and she saw one look at that house, and she said, "Look, Daddy, it's the Barbie house. <laughs> it's uh, it's that. It's just that obvious." Um, so I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen either movie, um, but you know there's an interesting sidebar um, regarding the uh, the Oppenheimer movie, in that um, University of California system was very involved with the development of the right. of, of the bomb and the Manhattan Project. Um, Oppenheimer's faculty at Berkeley, and you know kind of interesting uh, interesting side story, Bill. Um, at that time, you know, well, you know, if we go back a few decades before the 1940s, um, the University of California system was a pretty sleepy system. It was primarily a teaching university system. Mm-hmm. And then uh, around 1930, there was a big push to expand its research capacity, uh, and in particular in the sciences. Um, and Berkeley had the, the good idea to go out and hire Oppenheimer from Europe, which is where um, physics was really advanced, you know, much more advanced than it was in, uh, in the United States. Um, so Oppenheimer comes over to the United States, brand new young faculty member. He goes to Berkeley. He hooks up with Ernest Lawrence. Um, the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory is, is named partially after him and a chemist named Glenn Seaborg. Uh, and that was really kind of the place of, the place for doing theoretical physics. Um, plutonium was discovered somewhat by accident by one of their colleagues, a young fellow named, Ed, named Edwin McMillan. Um, so the University of California system in California more broadly played a big role in, uh, in, uh, in the development of this. It's interestingly, if you uh, look up the uh, Nobel Physics uh, laureates, uh, Berkeley went through a Nobel drought in physics from 1968 to 2006. It's done well since then. This century, they've uh, had three laureates. But the question, Lee, is since you uh, since you teach in the UC system, is the UC system, in your estimation, still on the vanguard of national security and these cutting edge applications as it was back in Oppenheimer's day with the Manhattan Project? Well, Bill, so that's a little bit of a yes and no answer. Um, Yes, in the sense that Berkeley remains very highly ranked among American universities within the areas of sciences. Um, in physics, they're number three. Now, uh, in chemistry, they're ranked first, I believe. Um, uh, engineering, they're, very, they're ranked very highly, typically in the top five. Um, earth sciences, they're inside the top five. So those types of rankings suggest that Berkeley remains just, you know, a giant in the world of science. Um, but a couple of things to note, those rankings change very slowly over time. Right. Um, there's a sense in which um, I think the excitement that was present in the 40s and 50s and 60s of Berkeley just completely taking off and being able to hire so many preeminent scientists, um, that you know, that bloom is off the road, so to speak. Um, the University of California system is no longer investing, in my opinion, investing enough in the science programs at the UC campuses. Um, Berkeley has lost some, um, you know, very famous scientists over the last 20 years who have received offers to go to other universities where, um, and the issue really ends up not being something um so mundane a salary, but rather the research facilities that these people have at their disposal to carry out the research they have. So things like 
accelerators and laboratories that are expensive. Um, they cost millions of dollars. Um, and uh, as far back as 20 years ago, there's a Los Angeles Times article that interviewed a number of Berkeley scientists who said that either they were thinking of leaving um, uh, Berkeley or that they had left Berkeley and they left simply because they went to places such as um, Cornell, Caltech, um, they, they went to universities in Europe because these other universities were offering them just much, much better research facilities. Um, and as a backdrop, that's really kind of the story about the UC today. Um, you know, California's bemoan the fact that tuition has become so high, even for in-state students. There's a lot of complaining about why the UC doesn't admit uh, more high achieving Californians, um, according to the master plan, if you go back to the 1960. Um, but you know, you walk around any UC campus, including my campus of UCLA, there's just a lot of, uh, we can put it politely, there's a lot of deferred maintenance. There's a lot of areas where there's just needs, there's enormous needs for investment um, just to replace decaying plant and, plant and equipment, uh, much less creating, you know, brand spanking new sparkling linear accelerators to attract the top physicists. So, yeah, so, so yeah, there's still a lot of scientific strength within the University of California community, um, but it's at risk if the UC doesn't, doesn't decide to invest more um, to keep those people, to keep those people in place. So having chastised the governor's office for reading too much into Barbie, I'm going to commit something of the same sin here and uh, offer this thought that Barbie and Oppenheimer uh, kind of represent bad aspects of California in this regard. Uh, with Barbie, it's just this tendency to want to delve into California nostalgia. Lee, you mentioned uh, the UC system of the 1960s. California politicians constantly evoke Pat Brown's era and the free UC tuition and the building of roads and the building of universities and waterways and so forth. And they neglect the fact that that was a California of 15 million people, not the current mess of almost 40 million people it is now. Uh, but if you look at Barbie, it's based on, you know, for it's a, it appeals to people who grew up on Barbies, as I mentioned, going back to 1959. So it ties into that, just as the Top Gun sequel that came out last year tied into 1980s nostalgia, Indiana Jones, which I ended up seeing last Friday. Uh, that ties in nostalgia as well. An 80-year-old Harrison Ford running around with a fedora and a bullwhip still getting it done. Uh, so there's the nostalgia side, but then you go to uh, Oppenheimer, and that's a morality play, something else which California, especially Gavin Newsom, love to get into at all points, morality. So here we have in Oppenheimer, what the morality of uh, oppressed Robert Oppenheimer, you know, picked upon in part because he is Jewish. Uh, Oppenheimer being used by the government. There are scenes in which he and Einstein talk about this. Um, the idea of building an atomic weapon, Oppenheimer uh, talking about being the destroyer of worlds and so forth. So it's three hours of morality thrust upon you. So unfortunately, way too many California politicians are guilty of the same crime. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Bill, uh, just my my little um, my little trivialing, but hope, hope trivial, but hopefully interesting factoid of the day. Um, back when I was an undergrad at UC Santa Barbara, um, two of the uh, two of the gals in the dorm, uh, well, one had a, a Barbie connection. Uh, her name was Kathy, and her dad had been the inventor of the chatty Kathy doll. Um, oh, my, my sister had that growing up, <laughs> and uh, and Kathy was definitely chatty. Um, so that's my uh, that's my one uh, my one connection to the world of Barbie and and um, where all that stuff was produced in um, near uh, near Palos Verdes and Florence and El Segundo. Okay, Jonathan, tell your colleagues to stop playing with the dolls. <laughs>
Um, you guys made comments about uh, education, so we can stay on that topic. Um, Lee, yeah. your, your column for California on your mind on Friday sheds light on California's new uh, math curriculum and failing student uh, achievement uh, across the state. Uh, the state is set to spend $128 billion on education this year, which, as you know, exceeds the entire budget of all states except for New York and Texas. You explain that now that the state is spending $128 billion per year, education leaders can no longer make excuses about the so-called paucity of funding. They have they have found a new scapegoat, however, in the state's curricula. Uh, you know, in particular, they have found they have made reforming math curricula a priority, and last week published a 1,000-word framework for a new approach to mathematics. Lee, what does that uh, new framework entail? Well, Jonathan. Um... Well, California has been struggling with uh, K through 12 student achievement, um, I mean, for decades. Um, it goes back to the 1980s and, and a RAND uh, Corporation report that identified that California education system, which um, at one point had really been the best in the country um, and the U.S. was the best in the world. So California was, um, was way out in front that, that it had been slipping. Um, and so now it's not just slipping, but we're to the point where three out of four kid, California K through 12 kids um, are below federal standards in mathematics. Um, there's only 30% who test at standard or above in English, according to federal standards. If you just think about that for a moment, um, you know, what does that mean for the future of California for these kids individually? It's, it's just awful. Um, we need high achieving, high performing new workers um, who are going to understand, not only understand new technologies, but develop new technologies who can become leaders across the field of industries. And these kids are just remarkably struggling. I'll give you an example of just how bad it is. Um, remember the old number lines we had in school? It's a, it's a flat line and there's zero and there's one and there's two and there's three. Well, Eighth graders were given a problem of looking at a number line and trying to figure out what the halfway mark was between the numbers 0 0.8 and 1.4. And there's a bunch of ways one could figure this out. Probably the easiest way is just take your pencil, go to the number line and kind of put it down in the middle. And then you'll see that between 0 0.8 and 1.4, halfway in between is 1.1. This is not a complicated mathematics problem just 27% of kids could do that in the eighth grade. Even worse was that only 7% of kids could uh, take two geometric figures and then put them together and then recognize among a set of six possible figures, which one was correct. Okay, now if you guess blindly, one out of six is roughly 17% corrected correct answer. So if kids were just blindly guessing, they would get about one out of six, which would be 17% proficiency. The actual proficiency rate was just 7%. Um, now, this problem was a little bit harder than trying to figure out what lies halfway between two numbers. Um, but still, it just it illustrates just the horrendous outcomes we're seeing in California for education. Now, for the last 30 years, California has been trying to figure out how to teach math. We, we dance from one math curriculum or one guidance or one framework to another. And the Department of Education just approved a new, quote, new and improved framework for teaching mathematics. And, you know, what's ironic about this is that the people who implement 
uh, and develop these programs and criticize the ones that are being replaced, they're the same ones that implemented and adopted the previous program. And they're the ones that adopted the ones before that. So there's not a problem in that we don't know how to teach math. We, we know how to teach math. We've been teaching math successfully for hundreds and hundreds of years, and not just we in the United States, all over the world, people have been teaching math successfully. We don't need a new framework, uh, but a new framework is what we have, and the framework is based uh, very heavily um, on themes of social justice, which today, of course, is very, very topical, racial inequities, uh, LGBTQ+, um, that is all in there. Um, and 6,000 6, STEM teachers and leaders signed a joint letter um, condemning this new framework, indicating that it was not going to be successful and it was going to substantially harm high achieving students, students with a high level of mathematical ability, because of this overwhelming focus on equity and making sure that everybody ends up being the same. Jonathan, what really troubles me about this is that um, I looked at I looked at the framework and um, it's a thousand pages long. Do we really need a thousand pages to figure out how to teach math um, between the, between you know between K through twelve? Um, and within this thousand pages, there's lots and lots of references to scientific studies that purportedly demonstrate uh, the benefits of the teaching methods and practices that have been implemented within this document. It turns out that the references that are within that document that supposedly support this new framework do nothing of the sort. There's a professor in mathematics at Stanford who specializes in education, who has won a number of teaching awards in teaching mathematics at the college level. He reviewed the document closely and found just many, many instances of um, references that, we, that did no such thing in terms of supporting the teaching methods. Um, ones that were erroneously cited, uh, there were references um, that were in the document that were not even anything closely about what they were supposedly supporting. So the development of this product um, was not professionally done. Um, and the idea that this is suddenly going to turn around the sinking ship, that we're going to create not one in four kids proficient, but two out of four, three out of four, I think is just laughable. The real problem in teaching math in California is that we have a body of teachers uh, that I think just don't know enough mathematics to teach mathematics. When you look at the countries that are successfully teaching mathematics, such as those in Shanghai, such as those in some of the Scandinavian countries, the common denominator is, is that the teachers are very, very highly advanced in mathematics training. It doesn't mean they knew the level of mathematics that Oppenheimer knew, but they really understand the nuts and bolts of arithmetic, uh, of multiplication, of rational numbers, of algebra. They really understand that. And when you and it's really difficult to teach stuff if you don't have a good if you don't have a good knowledge base. We just don't have enough teachers in California with an adequate knowledge base. Yeah, and, um, go ahead. 
Yeah, and just uh, and just what's uh, is ironic and so and so depressing about all of this is that, as we know, the state's run by the Democratic Party. Um, this is not a partisan statement, but the Democratic Party, time and again, comes out of Gavin Newsom's office, comes out of Attorney General Rob Bonta's office. You name it, the, Dem- the leading Democrats will talk about DEI until right. the cows come home. And guess what? In this new framework. Black kids and Hispanic kids and some girls are encouraged to take watered-down mathematics classes rather than the classes that other kids are taking. Why is that? I think it's just to simply cover the tracks of a failed educational system because Blacks and Hispanics, only about one out of 10, one out of 10 of those kids are proficient at national standard levels. Yeah, so Leo, I'll be curious to see what happens with the math curriculum when it hits the school district level. And I mentioned that because it's not just the summer of Barbie, but it's also been the summer of fights over curricula here in California and elsewhere. Kamala Harris, for example, has been involved in the uh, Florida and the uh, history curriculum uh, there. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but here in California, we had a backlash uh, just a few days ago, which involved California's new social studies curriculum. The issue here was that the uh, Temecula Valley uh, Unified School District had rejected the uh, the curriculum because because some board members uh, had issues with Harvey Milk, the uh, the Slain San Francisco supervisor, being part of it. Gavin Newsom gets very personally involved in here. He threatens uh, the district with a one and a half million dollar fine, and the district quickly flip flops and goes along with the program. Uh, we also have Tony Thurman getting involved here. And Lee, you mentioned uh, Newsom and Bonta. Tony Thurman would be the third leg on this uh, stool. He'd be the third side of this pyramid, if you will. He's the California's uh, superintendent of public instruction. He attended a, a meeting last week at the Chino Valley Unified School District. This is in San Bernardino County, so it's a redder part of California. He was given a minute to talk about, uh, to defend a policy, uh, to actually to, to speak against a policy that requires administrators to inform parents if their child decides to identify as transgender. He spoke over a minute and uh, was shouted down and hustled out of the place. The board promptly voted four to one against Thurmond and the policy uh, that he wanted to change. Um, And here's what one board member said to Thurmond during the meeting, quote, I appreciate you being here tremendously, but here's the problem. We're here because of people like you. You're in Sacramento proposing things that pervert children. Um, Pervert's a very strong word here. I'm not sure I'd agree with that or not, but the point is that Sacramento is doing things that parents, administrators don't care for. And I keep an eye on this uh, as we move forward in California, especially in political races. Tony Thurmond has gubernatorial aspirations, which we're going to talk about next. He is maybe going to run for governor in 2026. As our other Democrats lead, do they dare speak against the education establishment and take a side against a math curriculum, a social studies curriculum? It would seem a very tempting target for a Democrat who wants to finish at least second in a primary and pick off independent votes because I suspect parents out there, they're getting rather tired of this. Uh, parents are enormously tired. Um, and Bill, actually, my column for this week for um, our California and Mind product is going to be uh, talking exactly about <laughs> Tony's Thurmond, uh, Tony Thurmond's not so pleasant day in Chino Hills. Um, ah, and, uh, you know, Bill, what? Uh, so just a little bit of a preview for what I'll be talking about. Um, so Chino Hills put in place a policy that requires teachers, um, other school staff to notify parents. If a student um, says they're transgender, or that if they if they um, discuss um, you know sexual diaspora type issues, um, and Thurman went to push back on that. Um, and but what's interesting is then doing the research for this column, what I found is that um, if current statistics hold, 
about four out of five kids who are having these feelings, they will revert back uh, once they become adults. Um, so for a party that says, we're going to follow the science, um, I never see those types of statistics ever discussed. Um, and Bill, um, when you ask, you know, yeah, for all the parents, for all the families, for all the independents who are just completely fed up, um, I mean, <clears throat> We're spending $128 billion on educating about 5.8, 5.9 million kids. That budget, that budget is nearly um, is about the same as the combined budgets of uh, I believe it was, I, I, I put this together in my column for last week, um, believe Tennessee, uh, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. Those states have 33 million people compared to our 39 million people. Um, it's just, it's laughable that we're spending so much money and kids are just getting left behind. So yeah, it seems like that would be the point to make um, and try to push back a little bit from the party line. But Bill, you know, I think back to 2018 and when Tony Thurman was first um, elected, what was the, uh, gosh, that election was close. Do you recall what the numbers were there? Uh, I don't have them in front of me. I can look them up, but it was a close race, certainly by modern California standards. Yeah, yeah, a very close race. Uh, I think it was something that probably about 50.4 to 49.6, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, and Thurman ran against a Democrat, um, a Democrat who went up against the teachers unions and the educational establishment. And my goodness, uh, I think um, I think the funding on the, on his opponent's side uh, I'm not sure he got anything above the minimum from the state's Democratic Party. Right. And it was the point where uh, at the state's, and um, and now I'm blanking on, um, uh, do you happen to have this opponent's name? In Marshall Tuck. Marshall Tuck, Marshall Tuck. So this was an intriguing race in 18 um, because Tuck had a background of educational success. He had, he had taken over several failing schools in the Los Angeles area. Um, and he had done that in coordination with then Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa in Los Angeles. There were like four or five schools, primarily with, with uh, Hispanic kids that were failing horribly. Mm -hmm. Within a couple of years after Tuck had taken those over, college readiness, graduation rates, um, test scores had skyrocketed. This seemed to be the obvious solution. Marshall Tuck for state school superintendent rather than Tony Thurman. Um, at the end of the day, um, can you win without, without the, uh, without the blessing of the party, uh, and the incumbents? And, um, that's one data point that says you can't, no matter how good of a job you did beforehand. Yeah. California's, uh, superintendent of public instruction, SPI politics are fascinating. It's a nonpartisan race. Technically, you do not run as a Democrat or Republican. Um, but yet $60 million, Lee and Jonathan were spent on that race in 2018. This is the education establishment making sure they could kill Marshall Tuck because he was, he was a charter school champion. He'd been thinking outside the box in Los Angeles. And that is bad news. If you're the California teachers associations, they spent what it took to get Thurman, uh, Thurman on the finish line. Lee, it was uh, about a 1.6% margin of victory, about a hundred. 50,000 votes. So that's too scary for uh, by democratic standards. But the question here, Lee, and uh, Jonathan, we can move on to the next topic after this. Uh, do you think Thurman was doing this because he honestly hated the policy trying to be invoked 
by that local school board in uh, Temecula Valley? Or do you think that, uh, excuse me, in Chino Valley, or do you think this is simply just a very public showing of kind of doing his master's bidding, kind of saying in effect that, look, I know you, I owe you guys, I'm I'm your guy, and so here I am, you know, carrying your water, if you will. In other words, a very public Daniel and Lyons Den moment for him, good publicity, I suppose, for him, a Democratic base. But do you think he was doing this out of conviction or just political necessity at the moment? Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to think political necessity. Um, I've speak I've seen him speak a couple of times. Um he seems to be a person who genuinely does care about the students in California, yeah. but um, you know he's uh, he is tethered to his horse to uh, to a party which is on the wrong side of of, of creating learning outcomes. Um, Bill, I'll give you this: uh, he was much more civil and professional during his one minute of discussion at Chino Hills. Um, than Gavin Newsom has been um, with the people in uh, Temecula, um, where he has called people uh, ignorant and offensive. Extremists. Yeah, yeah, extremists. Um, So Thurman appears to be much more professional in that and civil. And um, he strikes me as a guy with his heart in the right place. Um, But uh, he does have these gubernatorial aspirations. And and yeah, I think he if he's gonna if he's gonna advance along those lines, um, I think he's got to go show the flag, and and he did that for his one minute <laughs> for his one minute in front of that parent um, that parent school board uh, school board council. Hardly seems hardly seems worth it to go from Sacramento down to Chino Hills to have one minute. Well, that tells me he was looking for something else, which was to get into a fight and get noticed. <laughs> Uh, Bill, let's talk about your uh, upcoming column uh, for this week um, in California on your mind, in which you talk about the prospects of Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis' uh, run for uh, governor of the state. You also talk about uh, in the column that there's not a SoCal Democrat uh, in the mix uh, for this race. We can we can talk about that in a minute. But talk about Lieutenant Governor Kunalakis. How does her campaign differ from uh, previous uh, governors, uh, in particular Gavin Newsom, who served as Lieutenant Governor under Governor Brown, and uh, Ray Davis back in the 1990s. So before anybody writes to me angrily and says, you idiot, this race is not for another 34 months. Why are we talking about this? Don't blame me, folks. People have already announced for this office and are running, and Lady Kunalakis, Lieutenant Governor, is, and so is the former uh, State Controller, Betty Yee. Uh, there are two others looking at that, Tony Thurmond, who we just talked about, and the State Attorney General, Rob Bonta. So, Lee, here we are again with the education uh, uh, group uh, out in the running, if you will. Uh, what's interesting about Lainey Kunalakis, and full disclosure, her husband, Marcos Kunalakis, is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Good guy. Um, she has a different background from the two previous lieutenant governors who won the job. That would be uh, Newsom in 2018 and Gray Davis back in 1998. Davis was a former uh, state assemblyman and former state controller and lieutenant governor, had a pretty good political resume. And Newsom was a former San Francisco mayor and lieutenant governor, also a deeper resume than Kunalakis. This is the only public office she has held. And both Davis and Newsom had very different approaches to this job than uh, Kunalakis did, I should say, actually not job, but the, the, the strategy for trying to be elected governor. Davis was in a very contentious primary in 1998, two very wealthy self-funding candidates fighting against each other, Jane Harmon, a congresswoman at the time, and Al Checky, the uh, uh, the, the airline executive who got the nickname Al Checkbook because he spent so much money in his own race. And those two were just kind of you know throwing rocks at each other. And so Davis' people decided the best strategy was to lay low, act as kind of the dignified, experienced guy, and it paid off for him. Newsom, on the other hand, Newsom paved his way to the governor's office by latching onto issues of great interest to Democrats 
Democratic primary voters. He got behind gun control initiative form. He got behind legalization of marijuana initiative uh, form, and that kind of buoyed him up. Kunalakis has not been involved uh, in initiatives, as far as I know. Uh, maybe her strategy will be, if it's a credit Democratic field, she'll try to lay low. Uh, but we'll see how she tries to use a job. And it's one of the great ironies of California politics. Lee and Jonathan, Lieutenant Governor of California, just doesn't have much in the way of responsibilities. They sit on a couple of boards. They get to vote, Lee, on uh, on uh, UC issues because they remember the Board of Regents. But the joke in Sacramento is you wake up in the morning, see if the governor has died. If he or she hasn't, you go back to sleep. <laughs> the day is over. Uh, but yet with voters, it's just the opposite people hear the title lieutenant governor and they think woo this is a person of great standing they must be the governor's sidekick and best friend in sacramento and it tends to give the job a lot of heft so be very interesting to see how she crafts herself in this because she still has you know 34 months or so to go until the june 2026 primary and she has to raise her profile and if you look at her press releases so far it's been pretty light in terms of her just she's doing a lot of meetings a lot of tours and things like this you don't find much in the way of policy so she probably needs to step up uh, on that front Bill, you know, it's interesting. She, um, uh, Kunalakis comes from a family of uh, housing developers and builders. Um, right, Sacramento. And uh, a few years ago, I did I did a friendly debate with her about California economic policy issues. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to things such as um, the California Environmental Quality Act and how it's been weaponized to block development and prevent development, delay development, um, you know, she has been upfront and close and personal with that. So I think she's much more sympathetic um, to modifying regulations within the state that make housing so difficult uh, to build and so expensive. Um, so that 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 strikes me as something that's a big plus on her. Um, you know, you also mentioned Betty Yee, who um, is fiscally much more conservative than a lot of people are in her party. Um so I think those are two candidates that could potentially be um, possibly be productive candidates for California. We can just pro I mean, I hate to say this in advance because you like to see political competition, <laughs> but um, it's probably going to be a Democrat. Um, you know, I, I'll take really long. I'll, 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 I'll take really long odds on a Republican. But um, those are two that I think um, could have some attractive features in terms of running the state compared to some of the others who've announced. Yeah, I think you've latched on something important here, Lee. Uh, in a credit democratic field, it's the question of what lane you get into. That phrase we like to use in politics, what lane are you swimming in? Uh, and in that regard, the California gubernatorial primary for Democrats, at least, uh, could look a bit like a San Francisco mayor's race in this regard. Historically, uh, mayor's race in San Francisco has come down to a choice of one person who is just really almost crazily progressive versus the other person who occupies the so-called sane lane. He or she is a champion of business, and you trust that person to kind of keep the city together. And that might be Eleni Kunalakis' ticket to ride here and that she just might make herself the pro-business, kind of pragmatic Democrat in the field because Tony Thurman's going to latch on to education, as we see, and be very woke in that regard. Ron Bonto, as an attorney general, he's very much into civil rights. So again, he's going to be terribly woke. So maybe Eleni Kunalakis will be the one who just tries to say, I'm really kind of concerned about California's economic well-being. It sounds, it sounds kind of a little staid for Democrats, but that just might be the smartest thing for her to do. Yeah, a... Um... An unintentional benefit of being in an office that doesn't have a whole lot of specific responsibilities is that you don't necessarily have to be the person who goes to Chino Hills and argues for some policy that parents just don't like. <laughs> Sit aside and wait for the wait for the dust to clear and then and then say, hey, you know what? If you're somewhere in the middle and you don't like a lot of stuff which you go on in Sacramento, yeah, maybe, you know, listen to hear what I have to say. I think maybe I think maybe my proposals will resonate with you. Mm -hmm.
Uh, Bill, in your column, you talk about three possible uh, names that could shake things up in the California race uh, for governor in 2024. And that's LA Mayor Karen Bass, uh, U.S. Senator Alex Padilla, and Kamala Harris, which is an intrig- which is an intriguing thought. Um, back in February, uh, Los Angeles Times columnist Mark Babaric, writing about Kamala Harris's future prospects, explained that the Office of Vice President almost always diminishes the occupant. There are some exceptions, including Dick Cheney, but look at where look where Mike Pence is today at the bottom of the GOP primary pack, polling around four percent. And Kamala Harris has dismal polling ratings and a rocky relationship uh, with Biden's staff. And that's led to speculation that Biden uh, may cut her loose uh, for his next presidential run. But she hasn't done that yet. Uh, She is seen as a drag on Biden should a Biden-Harris ticket win or lose in 2024. Um, And then if she if she were to run in 2028, that her pathway to the Democratic nomination would likely be narrow. Um, she probably wouldn't want her old seat in the U.S. Senate. Oh, absent a SoCal candidate, as you mentioned, she could try and run for governor of California when Gavin Newsom uh, moves on. Right. That is what precisely what Richard Nixon did in 1962. And I was thinking about that uh, based on my previous career at the Nixon Foundation. Um, something, some interesting parallels between her and Richard Nixon. Uh, six years prior to Nixon's run in '62, in 1956, President Eisenhower was ambivalent about Nixon being on his ticket when campaigning for a second term, and his, his aide showed him polling data from Gallup that Nixon was a drag to the ticket. Uh, Ike even told Nixon to consider taking up a cabinet post like Secretary of Defense uh, to gain requisite executive uh, experience. Um, this suggestion went public to the press in March of 1956, uh, when Ike was pressed from a member of the media, uh, he said, quote, the only thing I've asked Nixon to do is chart his own course and tell me what he would like to do. Um, Nixon was, of course, incensed that his boss was insinuating that he should voluntarily step aside. And Nixon called Ike's bluff and eventually won a sizable amount of votes in the New Hampshire primary. Um, This is all to say that 1962, after his loss to JFK, uh, Nixon tried his hand at running for governor. Um, He thought he could gain executive uh, experience in that role. Um, He also felt as if that he had never lost in in California um, as a congressman and a senator. Uh, But unfortunately, he was dogged by conservatives on his right uh, and that he wasn't conservative enough. And the Democrats also gained momentum from JFK's performance during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, In November, he explored, as you note in in your article, in November, he, he exploded to the press at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Los Angeles. I leave you gentlemen now and you will write it. You will interpret that's your right. But as I leave you, I want you to know, just think how much you're going to be missing. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore because gentlemen, this is my last press conference. <laughs> Harris, <laughs> Harris, like Nixon, never lost in California but before running for governor. Um, but could she be successful if she were to throw her hat in the ring? Well, so um, so I mentioned three Southern California Democrats. Let's eliminate the other two quickly. Uh, one is Karen Bass, the, the mayor of Los Angeles, who we talked about earlier. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, being the mayor of Los Angeles, is a graveyard for higher aspirations. Uh, Tom Bradley ran for governor and failed. So did Dick Reardon. So did Antonio Villaraigosa uh, against Newsom in 2018. So let's eliminate her from the group. Uh, the other one is Alex Padilla, uh, currently California's junior senator. I worked for Pete Wilson. He was governor in the 1990s in California. He ran and won the office in 1990s as sitting senator. So there's a uh, precedent there. And if you look at Padilla's media feed, it's a lot of California stuff. He's not a senator who's in love with uh, international issues or anything like that. He's a very kind. Con- a parochial senator. So 
Maybe he could, but I wouldn't bet on that either. Um, but it's Kamala who intrigues in this regard, and this is kind of it's far fetched in this regard. First of all, she she'd have to stay on the ticket, which I think she will. It's Lee. It's hard to see a Democratic Party that's obsessed with identity politics dumping the first female uh, vice president of uh, mixed racial heritage. I just can't see that happening. Uh, so she'd have to lose the 2024 election, then decide that she wants to come back like Nixon and decide it's going to happen in California in 2026. Uh, a great quote, by the way, that Nixon gave, and this kind of sums up Nixon's attitude toward California being governor. He uh, was on his way to the podium for that press conference, Jonathan and Lee, where he made the comment that I have Nixon to kick around. And he supposedly turned an aide and said the following, quote, losing California after losing the presidency. Well, it's like being bitten by a mosquito after being bitten by a rattlesnake. So I'm not sure that he uh, was as traumatized by that as he was in 1960 election. But uh, no, it would be hard to see Kamala Harris to come out to California and run for governor because uh, two things. Number one, if she and Biden lose the presidential race, especially if they lose it to Donald Trump, my God, she's going to get pilloried by Democrats, especially back here in California. How could you lose to that guy? And she'll be seen as part of the problem. But then secondly, Lee, she would have to pivot and show that she is a person of heft, gravitas, getting back to what we talked about, Lady Kunalakis. And that's the missing ingredient in the secret sauce that is Kamala Harris. At all times, she is a champion of word salads. There is no there there, as Gertrude Stein famously said about Oakland. So how she could transform from a failed candidate in early 2025 to a successful gubernatorial candidate in 2026, really hard to see. Really hard to see. She... <clears throat> He doesn't strike me as a person with a natural subconstituency within the Democratic Party. I just don't know who that would be. Um, you might say it would be among blacks, black voters. Um, black voters make up, I think, about 7% of California's electorate. So that's just not going to be quantitatively important. Um, there, uh, Bill, there is a poll, I believe it was about five months ago in the spring, done by uh, LA Times and UC Berkeley. So legitimate polling methodologies were used. She only had 37% favorable, favorable rating. Um, and that was among about 7,000 7, uh, voters. So the the statistical sampling margin of error is going to be small there. Um, I just don't see, uh, I just don't see how she does it. And, and what she really hit on there is, um, you know, where's the content? Uh, what's the level of competency? My goodness, if she can't handle what she's been given so far, uh, how is she going to be able to manage uh, a state of nearly 40 million people with the fifth largest economy? Um, I'd, I'd want, I'd, I just have to kind of close my eyes and keep my fingers crossed if that, if that, if that ever came to be. Yeah. By the way, to close the loop on this, uh, Nixon's remarks, Jonathan, 1962, he gave them at the Beverly Hilton, which up till last week was going to be the site of the Democratic Governors Association Summer Policy Conference. But then the DGA discovered to its horror that there's a strike going on at the Beverly at the Beverly Hilton. Democrats in California, Lee's laughing and shaking and said, Democrats don't cross picket lines. If you uh, go to uh, Sacramento, the downtown Hyatt Regency, they don't. Uh, Democrats never do events in that hotel, even though it's across the street from the Capitol because it's a non-union hotel. Newsom had said that he was not going to cross the picket line. And so you had the spectacle of a California governor not being able to go to the Governor's Association, Democratic Governor's Association's policy meeting because of the strike. Mercifully, perhaps they uh, moved the uh, location to, uh, I think, uh, the Bonaventure downtown. But there you go. Running for office for governor of California is very complicated on a lot of fronts, which I'm not sure these hopefuls quite understand yet. Well, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you. Thanks, fellas. Always fun. 
You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst, that's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter, his handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter, his handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hain write every week. Again, this is Jonathan McVoy sitting in Bill Whalen's chair for this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.